Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. A lot of media attention in the past couple of weeks, and frankly, the focus of our work here at Israel Policy Forum, has been on the pending agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, which is set to be signed in Washington next week. And wherever you come down on that agreement, it is no doubt historic. But it's not the only thing happening in the region, and it's not the only development that will have significant ramifications for Israel and its neighbors. One of the most important events to be taking place and coinciding with this time frame has been a brewing crisis in the eastern Mediterranean between Turkey and Greece over the ability to exploit natural gas resources and demarcate their own exclusive economic zones and maritime boundaries. To help us understand this issue and how things could take shape and possibly involve other actors in the region or keep things from spiraling out of control, we are fortunate to be joined by Gabi Mitchell, who is the Director of External Relations at the Medvim Institute and a PhD candidate in Government and International Affairs at Virginia Tech University. Gabi's research focuses on the influence of offshore energy development in the eastern Mediterranean region on the formation of Israeli foreign policy. So perfect for tackling this topic. Gabi, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Evan. So to start things off, I want to take a step back from the current crisis in the eastern Mediterranean because things sort of reached a flashpoint last month when we had an incident where Greek and Turkish warships collided in that area. But this is something that has been taking shape for quite some time. So can you give us a little background on what the issue is here and what the competing claims of Greece and Turkey are in this area? Absolutely. Uh, as you well know, Greece and Turkey have a long history of tension and grievance with one another. Uh, Greece, uh, during the dying days of the Ottoman Empire, uh, actually sought to exert control over part of the Turkish mainland uh, because of the existence of uh, a large Greek-speaking uh, community in Anatolia. Those forces were pushed back by Ataturk, who was uh, Turkey's founder. And uh, as a result of the formation of the modern Turkish Republic, there was a population exchange of Turkish-speaking Greeks uh, and Greek-speaking... Uh, wait, let's go back for a second. Sorry, I made a mistake. Uh, there was a population transfer of uh, Greeks who lived in Turkey and Turks or Muslims who lived in Greece um, to the respective other countries. And so uh, for the last almost 100 years, these two uh, actors have seen one another as rivals and have often uh, been deeply distrustful of one another, in particular in the Aegean, which is uh, the sea that separates the two countries. It is a, a ra rather small sea um, that is littered with islands of varying sizes. And in accordance with the agreement between the two countries in 1923 and the Treaty of Lausanne, uh, Greece inherited the overwhelming majority of the islands in the Aegean and the uh, both the rights to the islands and, at least in principle, the maritime rights surrounding those islands. Now, there have been disputes between Greece and Turkey about the extent of those maritime rights uh, and how exclusive those maritime rights should be well over the course of the last 50 years. There are periods of tension in the 1980s and 1990s, and the current wave of tensions um, are really brought about by the recent discovery of 
offshore natural gas in the region over the last uh, 10 years or so. So what we're talking about is a uh, conflict between two actors who have historical grievances, but are today being motivated by the opportunity to exploit offshore natural resources, and of course, dispute pre-existing historical treaties and uh, their sovereignty claims and maritime rights. So the long and short of it is that Turkey and Greece essentially are both claiming the same parts of the sea where they want to exploit natural gas. Absolutely. In one particular case, there are Greek islands that uh, are located within several miles of the Turkish mainland. And at least according to the United Nations Law of the Sea, uh, a country can claim the rights to the sea, and at least in theory, also the seabed, um, from anywhere between 12 nautical miles to as many as 200 nautical miles. Now, in general, neighboring countries need to agree on where the dividing line should be. Um, in many cases, it's not the 200 miles. In some cases, it's not even the 12 miles. They have to negotiate an agreement. But of course, neither Greece nor Turkey have negotiated this dividing line. And Turkey doesn't recognize that islands have a so-called exclusive economic zone or some kind of um, shield around them that offers uh, exclusive rights to the country in charge. So as, as a non-signatory of the United Nations Law of the Sea, um, Turkey has rejected uh, Greek claims and uh, has rejected, in particular, the claims that Greece has over islands that are very close to the Turkish mainland. So essentially, Turkey is looking at these islands, which, as you emphasized, and I encourage anyone who's listening to this to look at a map, because some of these Greek islands are really like right up against the Turkish mainland of Anatolia. They're viewing these as kind of exclaves of Greece, not as part of some kind of contiguous territory. And this is a pretty crowded corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And there are a number of other countries whose coastlines are butting up against one another and their exclusive economic zones are butting up against one another. Um, you have some like Egypt, Israel, and even the Palestinian Authority uh, that are exploiting their own uh, natural gas fields located in their respective exclusive economic zones in the area. So where do they and the other neighbors stand on this dispute that's taking shape between Turkey and Greece? So, as you mentioned, the other actors in the Mediterranean, and the Mediterranean is a closed sea, so uh, many of the actors in the region have no choice but to negotiate uh, some kind of delimitation of their maritime rights with their neighbors. Um, most of the other actors in the region are seeking cooperative initiatives to either exploit in cooperation with one another their natural resources, or at the very least, to avoid any kind of escalation of tensions or any kind of miscommunication. Um, you know, the discovery of offshore natural gas started in 2009 and 2010, uh, discoveries in Israel uh, primarily, and later there were discoveries in Cyprus and Egypt. So uh, prior to 2009, 2010, there wasn't an abundance of Eastern Mediterranean states who were seeking delimitation agreements with their neighbors. But the discovery of offshore natural gas prompted these uh, these state actors to seek out some kind of delimitation, some kind of way of identifying where does 
my space end and where does your space begin? Um, these quantities of natural gas are meaningful at a regional level, but can only maximize their commercial potential if pooled together. So countries like Israel and Cyprus and Egypt and Greece as well have uh, really sought to cooperate with one another, um, both in terms of delimiting, uh, delimiting their uh, their maritime boundaries, but also so they can cooperate in the area of, of energy and energy exploitation. Um, the development of these cooperative initiatives really reached a pinnacle in January of 2019 with the establishment of the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum. Now, the Gas Forum is a, a, a multinational body. It's a young organization, so it hasn't quite figured out what it wants to be in its entirety. But at least in principle, it's a forum for Eastern Mediterranean states to get together and work together on developing some kind of cooperative energy set of policies and commercial policies. And so the, the EMGF includes countries like Israel, Egypt, Greece, Cyprus, Palestinian Authority, Jordan, and Italy. And on the outside looking in, you have Lebanon, you have Syria, obviously, in the midst of its civil war, and also Turkey. So the reason why I bring all this information to bear is because countries like Egypt and Israel, while not necessarily uh, uh, wanting to be involved in Greek-Turkish disputes, are in part a part of this, uh, you know, regional, uh, this regional kaleidoscope of actors who in some cases are trying to cooperate with one another, but in other cases have significant disputes. And so uh, Egypt and Israel have at least recently taken positions that are supportive of Greece, um, while at least in theory, leaving the door open for negotiation. Um, this is a Greek-Turkish dispute, but in the Eastern Mediterranean, as I mentioned, it's like a small bathtub. And so the quarters are tight and one neighbor's set of issues with another has a tendency to uh, involve everyone, uh, everyone in the picture. You just touched briefly upon Israel's place in this whole puzzle. There's also, I think, here the issue of Israeli-Turkish relations, which have deteriorated significantly under President Erdogan's rule in Turkey and also a number of sort of mini crises between Israel and Turkey, like the Gaza flotilla incident in 2010. How has that political relationship impacted Israel's gas exploration efforts? And has it played in in any way to Israel's position in this current crisis, Israel's membership with this Eastern Mediterranean gas forum notwithstanding? Energy and the prospect of energy cooperation was definitely one of the primary rhetorical tools used by Turkey and by Israel uh, to legitimize their reconciliation agreement in 2016. Ever since Israel discovered offshore natural gas, uh, Turkish officials have been asking for the possibility of Israel to export its natural gas to Turkey. Turkey, like Israel, uh, has historically been bereft of uh, fossil fuels. It's constantly seeking uh, to diversify its supply and um, up until recently was heavily dependent on both Russian and Iranian gas and oil. So um, back in 2009, 2010, Turkey was really committed to convincing Israel to export its natural gas to Turkey. Um, 
you know, the the rhetorical tool in 2016 um, was a convincing one. But in the end, negotiations between the two parties broke down in late 2017. Um, the public reason that was given was that the two parties couldn't agree over a price. A large uh, infrastructure, like a undersea pipeline between Israel and Turkey, would cost somewhere in the area of 2 to $4 billion. Um, and of course, there are pricing issues once the gas reaches either the Turkish market or, in theory, the European market. So there were disputes over price, but of course, there were also issues about the geopolitics of the region. Turkey and Cyprus are also uh, at odds with one another. Turkey and Cyprus having fought uh, a war between one another in the 1970s, uh, and Turkey does not recognize Cyprus. Um, and Israel, who has a, a cooperative relationship with Cyprus and has actually increased its cooperative relationship with Cyprus over the last 10 years, I think was also hesitant to uh, burn that bridge for the sake of uh, some commercial gains. Um, in a normal world, uh, Israel and Turkey probably would be energy partners, but the current geopolitical landscape of the Eastern Mediterranean and, of course, the personal relationship between Turkey and Israel's leaders, President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, don't enable them uh, to actually uh, come into fruition. As of right now, most of the region's gas is directed towards Egypt, who also has issues with Turkey. And if you look at the kind of broader landscape, Greece, who has issues with Turkey, uh, Cyprus with its issues with Turkey, and Egypt with its issues with Turkey, um, you know, Israel, even on its own, has a difficult time finding that fine line of both being critical at times of Turkey's position, and Israel did speak out uh, very strongly in August uh, when Turkish warships entered uh, uh, the Aegean, but at the same time, leaving the door open for dialogue and communication with Turkey. Um, Israel wants to maintain that communication as limited as it may be. And also on the Turkish side, there is a desire and interest in, um, let's say, uh, mitigating its relationship with Israel, using uh, anti-Israel rhetoric as a political tool when convenient, but not drawing Israel into Turkey's disputes with other regional actors. So there's an interest on both sides to kind of keep an open channel of communication. Um, and the, the gas conversation, at least in theory, could return, uh, but the current economic climate doesn't really enable it, nor does the geopolitical climate. This brings us kind of back to the big news story of the past couple of weeks, which, as I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, is Israel-UAE normalization. You sort of hinted at this, but Turkey has leveraged its own rhetorical anti-Israel positions in the past, and the issue of Israel-UAE normalization was no different. Turkey blasted Israel and the Emiratis for, for normalizing with Israel, and that, of course, despite the fact that Ankara has had official relations with Israel for several decades and even had its own normalization and reconciliation agreements with Israel a couple of years ago to resolve some of the more recent disputes that we just spoke about. The UAE and Turkey are also kind of seeing themselves as competing for a leadership position in the wider Middle East. They're finding themselves now on opposite sides, not only in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but more proximate to what we're discussing now, 
uh, other regional conflicts like the ongoing civil war in Libya. Turkey has, for example, signed an agreement demarcating its maritime exclusive economic zone with the government of national accord, which is its favored faction in the Libyan war. And then you have the United Arab Emirates on the other side of this conflict supporting Khalifa Haftar, who's the other, who's leading the other faction in that conflict. So this Mediterranean crisis is on Turkey's Western flank involving its kind of European facing uh, rivals like Greece and Cyprus, but how could Turkey's relations with other Middle Eastern states like Israel and the UAE play into this situation? And, and especially zeroing in on the UAE, because we just spoke about the Israeli angle on this also. So the UAE is uh, an increasingly important actor in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, the UAE has an uh, a role in the civil war in Libya uh, and has supported General Haftar, who's uh, essentially the opposition force to the UN-backed uh, government of national accord. It's important to also recognize that General Haftar is also supported by Egypt, uh, who has the financial backing of uh, the UAE, along with several other Gulf states. So UAE, though not a necessarily a technical member of the Eastern Mediterranean, is an active actor in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, it participates in military exercises with Cyprus and Greece. And of all of the members of the international community who have taken vocal positions on uh, maritime rights in the Eastern Mediterranean, the UAE has made positions clear in support of Greece um, and against Turkey. Now, as you mentioned, the UAE and Turkey are uh, competitors in some ways in the much larger uh, ideological conflict between, let's call it, Sudi moderate states uh, and states that are supportive of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood or similar types of ideologies. Um, and so in many ways, uh, Turkey sees the UAE as uh, as a rival, uh, maybe not in the traditional sense in which uh, Turkish and UAE forces would one day uh, uh, engage in conflict with one another, but certainly as uh, actors on opposing sides of a much broader conflict uh, and ideological conflict that's taking place in the Middle East. So the UAE's role uh, and the UAE's decision to announce normalization with Israel does in some way weave a thread through all of these developments in the Eastern Mediterranean, how and in what way still remains to be seen. Um, from the Israeli perspective, the Libyan conflict is well beyond the boundaries of its influence. At the same time, Israel supports Egypt um, and has a very strong cooperative relationship with President al-Sisi uh, and would, I think, prefer um, either, you know, an end to the conflict itself and some kind of mediated arrangement, but uh, does in some way have a dog in that fight. Um, and certainly, just like the UAE, Israel has a cooperative relationship with Cyprus and with Greece as well. So there is an interconnecting of these, uh, of these interests. And of course, we're in the kind of nascent period right after the announcement that Israel and, and the UAE would normalize relations, we don't really know uh, what kind of agreement and in, and in what way these two actors are going to cooperate. Although, of course, we do know that the primary motivator 
for their for their normalization is Iran. But I would say that concerns over the Muslim Brotherhood or actors that support the Muslim Brotherhood is definitely a close second. And in that sense, uh, Turkey is a vocal supporter of Hamas. Uh, and while Israel does find ways of cooperating with some of Hamas's supporters, most notably Qatar, who was also a competitor of the UAE, um, Israel's position vis-a-vis -vis Turkey is a little bit more complicated. Turkey, as you mentioned, has a deeply embedded cooperative commercial relationship with Israel, estimated between five to six billion dollars annually. Turkey speaks in a very aggressive way um, about Israel's engagement towards the Palestinians, and in particular the Gaza Strip, uh, and was very critical of the UAE and its decision to normalize with Israel, all of those things being hypocritical, uh, because not only does Turkey have all of the benefits that one would want from having a diplomatic relationship with the state of Israel, and Turkey was the first Muslim country to recognize the state of Israel, and despite all of the tensions between Turkey and Israel over the last decade, Turkey would be reticent to cut that final cord. But more importantly, Turkey doesn't back up its words in its support for Palestinians, whether it be Hamas or for the Palestinian Authority. Turkish foreign aid, uh, humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip uh, has not changed, and it is not. Uh, uh, we haven't seen a serious spike in Turkish interest in engagement in Palestinian humanitarian issues, even after the 2016 reconciliation agreement. So there's a disconnect between Turkey's rhetoric and Turkey's actions. Um, Israel is where, well aware of that. And I would have to say that UAE is probably well aware of that as well. It partially explains why Israel is able to have a cooperative relationship with Qatar, which provides Hamas with funding. But when it comes to Turkey, you do hear Israeli officials increasingly say uh, that Turkey is a is a rival or a competitor uh, in in the region. Just two more questions before we close this out. One, looking at things from kind of a more global scale, is there any way in which the fall in global energy prices during this COVID nineteen pandemic has exacerbated or, or amplified the crisis between? Greece and Turkey and other states in the Eastern Mediterranean, which with all of these other historical grievances, the current crisis and the current incidents that are taking place are, are fundamentally about access to natural resources and natural gas. Absolutely. What we've seen over the last six months is a dramatic crash in global energy prices, both oil and natural gas. A lot of the projected projects within the Eastern Mediterranean, and most notably the East Med Pipeline, which would have uh, theoretically brought Israeli and Cypriot and maybe even Egyptian natural gas to the European market, those projects are, uh, are frozen. Uh, the international oil companies and gas companies that are exploring in Eastern Mediterranean waters have frozen. Uh, their exploration for the time being. And the price of gas has dropped to a point that many of these long-term plans are no longer commercially viable. Um, so that's one impact uh, that COVID and the uh, economic ramifications of uh, a global pandemic have had on the region and the region's actors. I do think that the uh, dispute between Greece and Turkey, although rooted and embedded in Historical disputes between the parties, um, I do think that uh, the pandemic has exacerbated the situation 
uh, somewhat. You have serious economic challenges in most of the countries of the Eastern Mediterranean, just like all over the world. Um, and the concerns and the considerations of uh, political leaders is oftentimes uh, balanced by a desire to pursue foreign exploits and foreign interests in order to distract the general pop population from the pressing issues, which are economic and health-based. Um, so I do think that there's a domestic atmosphere right now, both in Greece and in Turkey, um, that is pushing uh, the political leadership to take hard positions and uh, not engage in negotiation yet. Uh, there have been uh, announcements made just this week that perhaps in the next couple of days, Greek and Turkish diplomats will engage in what would be effectively the second round of negotiations with one another. The question is whether these negotiations are really to uh, resolve their maritime differences or just to de-escalate. Um, de-escalation is good. Uh, we don't want, uh, I don't think anybody wants an escalation of the current situation in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, but once again, these kinds of negotiations between longtime rivals and competitors should be framed not only within the context of the current dispute, but also how those actors are looking back at their reflective populations and what those publics are concerned about versus what the political actors want them to be concerned about. So COVID, I think, has made the situation in the Eastern Mediterranean more complicated uh, than it originally was and has placed a primacy on geopolitical issues and maritime issues rather than commercial challenges. The commercial challenges are actually the biggest issue, but they're being talked about the least. Right. Well, it seems that COVID hasn't really made a whole lot of things better. So that makes sense. On this note of de-escalation, I want to know a little more about what is being done to stop this situation from spiraling out of control. Because as we've established, it's Greece and Turkey, but it's not just Greece and Turkey. There are a lot of close neighbors who have intersecting interests here, and it seems like there's a lot of potential for this thing to really blow up and not just involve these two countries. And of course, Greece and Turkey are both NATO members. Um, they've come to blows before, even while they were both NATO. And you mentioned the Cypriot War in the 1970s. Um, but certainly there are a lot of European countries and also the United States who are their NATO allies and have an interest in seeing this thing calm down a bit. So there have been a couple of different strategies taken by European actors. And, uh, and then I think we can talk about the American approach, which is also uh, separate from the European approach. Um, within Europe, there is a lack of consensus about how to approach Turkey. Um, there were German efforts to mediate between Turkey and Greece in late July and early August. Those mediation efforts collapsed after Greece signed a delimitation agreement with Egypt, which essentially cut across Turkey's agreement with the Libyan government of national accord. And the Turks, offended by the fact that this announcement was made while they were negotiating with Greece, forced Turkey to walk from uh, the negotiating table and send their ships back out into the Aegean. So uh, Germany is trying to mediate between the sides and uh, Angela Merkel who is now assuming the uh, presidency of the European Council, will play a central role, I assume, 
in trying to find some kind of language that will both de-escalate ties and push the parties towards a path of direct negotiations. But other European actors have operated in different ways. Uh, France, for example, has sent warships into the Aegean in support of Greece, and uh, President Macron has made some uh, pretty bold statements about drawing red lines with Turkey and uh, making it clear to Turkey where it can and cannot involve itself in the Eastern Mediterranean. Note that France and Turkey are also on opposing sides of the Libya conflict. So all of these internal issues in the Eastern Mediterranean have a much larger and more complex web once you move from the boundaries of the region itself. Italy, also a member of the EMGF uh, and Italian co companies operate and explore in Eastern Mediterranean waters, as do French companies, um, Italy has taken more of a middle ground. It has a cooperative relationship with Turkey. It is cooperating with Turkey and has uh, mutual interests in Libya with Turkey. So the, Europe is not united, but it still wants to play a role in this process because Greece and also Cyprus are members of the European Union. So there are meetings scheduled for late September, um, and we'll see how that process uh, how that process goes. I was uh, speaking to a, a, a Turkish analyst earlier today, and what they said is fairly logical, right? Europe does not have carrots to offer Turkey, and it does not have sticks. So European countries are involved, but I think that the primary reason why European countries are, are involved is because the United States is not involved. And this is one of the uh, more challenging parts of the Eastern Mediterranean picture. Because if we were to tell the story of the Eastern Mediterranean over the last 10 years, and we were to say that many of the developments were either accelerated or in some ways triggered or influenced by the discovery of offshore natural resources, then the second development, which has also played a pretty central role in regional, uh, regional developments, is the gradual withdrawal of the United States from the region, both in terms of its withdrawal from Syria, its withdrawal from the Libyan conflict, its moving of the Sixth Fleet to other areas uh, around the world. And uh, the United States right now is not playing a central role in these processes. Obviously, its diplomats are working to try to calm uh, the two sides. And in August, uh, Secretary of State Michael Pompeo met in Vienna with uh, his Greek and Turkish counterparts in order to convince the sides to uh, to calm tensions. But the United States is sending a bit of a confusing message because while on the one hand it's calling the sides to negotiate, we also know, or at least it's been reported, that President Trump and President Erdogan have a good relationship with one another, uh, at least according to reports. And at the same time, the United States recently lifted an arms embargo that would allow the sale of American weapons to Cyprus. Um, so the United States is sending mixed signals. Uh, there have been congressional efforts in the past to sanction Turkey for its actions, uh, both in the region and elsewhere. Um, and there's, a, I think, a growing regional uh, consensus that perhaps there's an opportunity to wait and to pause and to see what will happen after November 3rd. And would a new administration bring more clarity to America's position and policies in the Eastern Mediterranean and perhaps the broader Middle East? If Europe is uh, divided and the United States is not having a clear message, at least for the time being, that doesn't offer a whole lot of 
alternative options for mediation. But there is one uh, possibility, possibility in addition to the ones I just mentioned, and that is NATO. As you, as you mentioned, Greece and Turkey are both NATO members. NATO has a vested interest in calming uh, issues between its member states. And of course, you know, the tensions have taken place within the context of the naval engagement in the region. Um, and so perhaps there's a role that NATO can pl play as well in reminding two NATO actors what the priorities should be and putting them once again on a path towards negotiations. Now it's possible that Greece and Turkey could sit down with a mediator and resolve their maritime differences. It's difficult to believe that that'll happen because in all likelihood, direct negotiations, somebody's going to have to give up on their on their position. Greece doesn't want to give up on its maritime rights. Turkey doesn't necessarily want to give up, uh, give up on, uh, on what it sees as an opportunity to uh, ex extend its influence across the region. And so it's difficult to see right now how the parties can engage in direct negotiations. But at the very least, that is the optimal scenario. There's also the option of international arbitration. But if there is international arbitration, there's the prospect that either side could lose even more than they would uh, potentially lose in direct negotiations. The status quo is unsustainable. So the question now is who in the international community is best suited to reaching the parties making a sound argument for direct negotiations and convincing the parties to meet together. It seems like there are a lot of moving parts here and a lot kind of seems to hinge on whether the current concerns will supersede um, some more longstanding grievances as well. So this is certainly an issue to watch with ramifications, not just for Greece and Turkey, but for other Eastern Mediterranean states Israel and the others as well. So we will keep monitoring this. And Gabi, thank you for joining the podcast and for sharing your expertise on this. Thank you so much, Evan. I really appreciate it. And for our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Israel Policy Pod. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will catch you next time.